I have a whole stack of books I want to talk about. Uh, so uh, I think we're going to have to extend the session by an hour. <laughs> so I'll have equal time per book. Uh, the first book I want to mention is uh, is one I wrote under my pen name, Adam Nicholson. This is called God's Secretaries, the Making of the King James Bible. And uh, for those of you who don't know about the people who made the King James Bible, uh, uh, I'm willing to tell you that this was perhaps the only successful committee project of all time. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I myself regard this, uh, this version of the Bible as a jewel of the English language. Uh, in fact, uh, it's hard to think of anything that has influenced the language more in the past 400 years. Uh, for many people, this was the only book they ever read or, or knew anything about, and its phrases have entered the language so widely that most of us are completely unaware of how pervaded the English language is by metaphors uh, taken from the King James Version of the Bible. I, uh, I actually take offense at these modern translations, uh, recognizing they have their virtues and they may be better as translations and so forth, but I don't think they'll, uh, they'll ever equal the beauty, uh, the poetry of the King James Version. <clears throat> uh, one of the members of this committee was a, a man named Lancelot Andrews, uh, this this book of mine, which I've just begun reading, I've, on, I've only made it to page 33 so far, so I don't don't know a great deal. But it's clear that one of the main characters of this book will be Lancelot Andrews, and uh, Andrews was uh, clearly a fascinating uh, man. I, I identified with him immediately when uh, I encountered the description that he could speak. 15 modern languages and six ancient, but the heart and bulk of his existence was his sense of himself as a worm. Uh, so, uh, except that I don't know any of those languages, uh, he and I, ha I, I feel, have much in common. And, uh, uh, but uh, in 1603, Andrews, who was a, uh, he was the dean of uh, Winchester, he was a high official in the clergy of the Church of England. Uh, he preached a sermon, and uh, what I really want to tell you is one of the things he said. The sermon was basically railing against the inclination of so many people in, in, in Jacobean England to be innovative, to be you know, doing new things, to be forsaking the ways and traditions of their forebears, and this seemed to Andrews to be a scandalous thing, and so he, he preached mightily against it, and one of the things he said is, what could be more wicked than the idea of being an author, let alone witty? So I'm going to try to bear that in mind in case I'm ever tempted to be witty. Uh, Last year when I spoke uh, to you at the book session, I mentioned that uh, a book called Rethinking Green was going to be published uh, pretty soon, and, and it was. And so I just want you to know that this book is available uh, if you have any interest at all in uh, environmental policy making. 
Uh, and uh, you may have an interest, not, not because you're an environmentalist, but uh, perhaps because you recognize that uh, in various guises, environmentalism is one of the uh, principal uh, forms in which uh, uh, the forces that oppose what most of us in this room favor are expressing themselves and uh, gaining uh, uh, public policies to implement their views. Uh, uh, we don't have to worry too much about organized communism anymore, but uh, in some ways the environmental movement, the green movement, has simply replaced the reds with greens uh, to somewhat similar effect. So uh, the authors in this book... Uh, are all at pains to, uh, I'm only the editor here with Carl Close of this book, so I wrote the introduction and nothing more. Uh, they're all at pains to demonstrate both the failings of uh, current environmental policies uh, and uh, alternatives by which uh, uh, desirable objectives might be achieved uh, through private property and the market. So. Uh, if you have an interest in this field, I encourage you to have a look at Rethinking Green, Alternatives to Environmental Bureaucracy. Uh, now, I'll, I'll tell you about several books that have been uh, published in the past uh, year. Uh, the, uh, the first one uh, is called Resurgence of the Warfare State, uh, subtitled The Crisis Since 9-11, and uh, this consists of my own writing and uh, is an odd book. Uh, it's unlike anything I ever uh, put forth as a book before. Uh, right after 9-11, I was contacted by uh, a number of journalists who were familiar with my work on the growth of government and particularly my book, Crisis and Leviathan. And, and they recognized that uh, that uh, what had happened on 9/11 might trigger a kind of crisis that would set in train uh, the same sort of uh, spurt in the growth of government that I had uh, do documented. Uh, many people had documented uh, having taken place uh, in connection with the World Wars and the uh, Great Depression and 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 to some extent lesser national emergencies as well. Uh, in U.S. history, and so I, I did respond uh, to these journalists in various ways. I, I was invited to write things, uh, uh, and uh, for the most part, I simply took it upon myself from time to time to uh, express my views about uh, what was uh, being done by the, by the U.S. government in response to the events of 9-11, and so the, the book uh, puts between covers here uh, about three and a half years worth of what I had to say from time to time about what I take to be the utter immorality and idiocy of the U.S. government's response to 9-11. And uh, if, uh, if you're interested in that subject, and I think you should be because it poses a great threat to, uh, to our freedoms and, uh, and to mankind, I think, the way it's uh, unfolding, uh, then, uh, then it affects us all. Uh, so this was, uh, this was one man's uh, uh, 
attempt to at least to show that uh, not everybody stood by and uh, just allowed these terrible things to be done without protest. Uh, the, the next book I want to mention uh, is another edited volume by, uh, by Carl Close and me. Uh, it's called The Challenge of Liberty, uh, Classical Liberalism Today. And uh, like the book I, I mentioned, uh, Rethinking Green, this book also consists uh, entirely, except for the introduction that Carl and I wrote, uh, of... Uh, articles uh, first published in uh, in the Independent Review, and I don't know who brought this, but uh, it's a good uh, show and tell too. It's the cover of the uh, current issue of the journal, the Independent Review. Many of you know about this journal, and, and many of you, in fact, have, have written for it or refereed for it or uh, advised me in various respects and and. And while I have you all here, I want to say thank you again because uh, make, making a journal successful is a, a definite group enterprise. And no matter how hard an, an editor works, an editor is nothing without raw material and uh, people to help. And so uh, uh, I appreciate all the help that so many of you have given to me over the years. The journal is now 10 years old. We're working now on the 11th uh, year. And uh, I, I think along the way we've managed to put out some, some pretty good stuff. Uh, much of it is, is here in the Challenge of Liberty, uh, and uh, uh, some of these authors are very well known. Uh, James Buchanan, for example, Anthony DeJesse, uh, 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 others not so well known, uh, but, uh, but wrote nice pieces uh, for the journal. Uh, Tom Saws has a, a nice article here. Uh, Charles Rowley, Dan Klein, uh, many others whose names uh, are familiar to you. Uh, and uh, what we tried to do in this book was to show that classical liberalism is not just some moldy thing, uh, some doctrine that uh, that was espoused by uh, by uh, people in the 18th and 19th centuries, and then and then passed away to sit on the shelves of, of uh, libraries unread, but uh, classical liberalism is a living doctrine. Uh, it was not refuted. It was simply ignored uh, for a long time, and it's very much alive. Uh, in the introduction, Carl and I, uh, among other things, I think um, bring back uh, Mises as perhaps the, the leading figure of classical liberalism in the 20th century. And that too, I think, uh, comes as actual news to many people. They, they, they don't even know about Mises. Many people who write in political science and, uh, and political philosophy nowadays have no idea of even who Mises was, or they've never read anything by him. Uh, even though I was trained in economics, when I went to school, I was never assigned anything by Mises. And I'm sure that that's still the case today, unfortunately. So we, uh, we have uh, attempted here to demonstrate, not just to say, look, we think classical liberalism holds great promise. There's a meat in this book, and I think it shows that classical liberalism is a living, vital uh, 
a doctrine uh, that is worthy of, uh, of anybody's intellectual attention. Uh, and uh, so I recommend that book to you. Uh, now, uh, I, I just got here this morning. I don't know if Joe Siemens here yet, but uh, uh, you back there, Joe? I see. Yeah, I see him in the back. Uh, uh, talk to Joe about another book I have coming out next month. Uh, he tells me it's coming out, and I trust him. Uh, <laughs> and I also trust him to tell me what's in it, because this book is in the Czech language. And I don't read that language, uh, and so, uh, as I as I told Joe at one point, I mean, uh, th this could actually be the history of Donald Duck, and uh, <laughs> I'd never know. <laughs> but uh, for all of you who read the Czech language, uh, I have a book coming out <laughs> in Prague next month, <laughs> I think. Now, one I'm a little uh, more certain about, uh, and I don't have the book to show you, and it's uh, slated for publication at the end of April, uh, is different from anything I've mentioned so far. Uh, and uh, uh, this one is being published by Oxford University Press, and it's called uh, Depression, War, and Cold War, Studies in Political Economy. And uh, that, that's what the cover's going to look like, at least. Uh, so you can look for that. Uh, I'm rather interested in this book uh, compared to the others I've written uh, in recent years because uh, I've, I've done several collections of articles and uh, uh, edited volumes and, and things of that sort. Uh, th this... <clears throat> This book uh, from Oxford is, uh, is, is a meteor book. Uh, it's, uh, it consists of 10 chapters, uh, all, all of which were in uh, some form previously published. Everything's been redone for this book and integrated so that it's all uh, part of a coherent book. But um, the, these, uh, these papers are, in a sense, the, uh, among my more serious follow-ups to Crisis in Leviathan. Uh, I, I complain sometimes that people think, you know, this guy Higgs, what did he ever do? He, well, he wrote a book. He wrote a book called Crisis in Leviathan. That's what he did. Well, it's true. I did that, but uh, I, I've done other things, believe it or not. <laughs> and, uh, and, <laughs> and I don't think they're all just trivial, and so I hope this, uh, this book will show that after Crisis in Leviathan, I continue to do some worthwhile work uh, in this area. Uh, it deals with the, such uh, topics as why the Great Depression lasted so long, uh, far longer than in any other country, uh, uh, what the relationship was between the end of the Depression and World War II, uh, there's a, a received doctrine that says the war ended the Depression, and I uh, have long disputed that and tried to clarify in what sense, if any, the war may be taken to have ended the Depression. And uh, so there's, uh, there's a, a, a number of chapters on the nature of the war economy during World War II. This has been held up for a long time, as the prime validation of the vulgar Keynesian model. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's anything but that. 
And so I'm at pains here to demonstrate exactly why that's a bankrupt view, uh, even though it's held to this day, not only by general public, uh, but by, uh, by most economists, I think, still. I see it uh, every time I open books uh, that have anything to do with this. People are asserting the war ended the Depression, just as if it's as obvious as anything can be. So uh, I deal a lot with the war economy. I think it's been totally misunderstood. Uh, and uh, this is a good topic for an Austrian because it's been misunderstood for the same reasons uh, that people misunderstood uh, the socialist calculation problem, basically. They, uh, they just didn't know uh, what was a meaningful uh, uh, a number, basically. <laughs> People look at the reduction of the unemployment rate in World War II or the rise in, in measured uh, GDP and they think prosperity. And they're wrong. Uh, the second five chapters in this book are about the Cold War period and, uh, and uh, in different ways uh, analyze what that involved in terms of uh, the relationship between the war economy uh, and uh, the the rest of the economy uh, deal with things like the nature of, uh, of business fluctuations. Even the dating of business cycles is altered if we get more serious about the role of the war economy. And, uh, and I take up questions of the profitability of the big defense contractors and the role of public opinion in sustaining high levels of uh, military spending, and a num number of other things. So uh, I hope you will uh, have a look at Depression, War, and Cold War uh, when it comes out. Uh, should be available in, in May. Thank you very much. <laughs>